0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter covering FinTech, PropTech, and Latin America. It is Mary Ann Azevedo. Mary Ann, say hello to the people.
1: Hello everyone, happy to be here today. How are you, Alex?
0: I'm good. It's Thursday. I have lots of coffee. It's not raining. The dogs are all inside and not barking at me. I had two breakfast sandwiches for breakfast, so I'm I'm feeling great, actually. Yeah, hanging in there.
1: I'll bet. That sounds awesome.
0: Yeah, so there's a bacon shortage in the Northeast. Sorry, but not very sorry. Anyways, we have an absolutely packed show today for you. We have notes on a couple of deals, including Sesame and Wonder Group. And Trust me, you're going to want to hear the second one of those. It's very interesting. Then we're going to talk about good news out there in the world of startups. Equity and the market has been a bit of a doom and gloom situation lately. So we're going to turn it up, flip it around and have some good news times. Then we're going to talk about the housing market and go right back into the bad times, Marianne, because (laughs) Redfin and Compass are not exactly hiring new staff. And then we're going to talk about WTF is going on in the world of crypto. And we'll try to do that with as few bleeps as possible. (laughs) Marianne, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. Let's go. All right. So first up is going to be Sesame, and I'm not going to make any open Sesame jokes. I'm just going to hand the baton to you. Tell us what's going on.
1: Yeah. So Sesame is what they describe themselves as an online medical care marketplace. And basically, its model is is very interesting. It's got physicians on one side of the marketplace, and this includes specialists and not just like primary care physicians and then consumers on the other. And one of their model offers is that you can get medical care without insurance mm-hmm. and they claim at like half price okay in other words like you could spend i don't know say and i think an average of forty dollars per visit what's cool about that though is you don't have to worry about claims with insurance the physicians on the marketplace don't have to worry about dealing with insurance you do a pay per visit things right so you have your appointment you pay that's it you move on so there's no worrying about am i gonna get this fat bill later because insurance didn't cover something. So I think this sounds really, really cool. I mean, First of all, it opens up access to a lot of people who either don't have health insurance or do have health insurance with super high premiums. So they can get what they're saying is quality healthcare. And then, you know, the physicians like it, again, because they don't have to deal with the bureaucracy of insurance filing and all of that. They just get paid and move on.
0: Yes. So a couple of questions about this. One, it's cash. So like if I get a service, I pay for it. And that's the whole transaction. Is there like a, a price list available for these sort of things? Because pricing opacity has been a key issue you in the American healthcare system for well, forever, I think.
1: Right, right. I don't think there's a price list per se because it depends on the physician, it depends on the specialist. Like each, it. it's being a true marketplace, the physician sets their prices, right? So it, it's uh, okay, yeah. So it's like competitive, it really is competitive. So it's in their best interest not to charge too much because then you're going to go with another doctor, um, which is interesting. But in, in terms of transparency, they do tell you, of course, up front, this is what your visit's going to cost, go ahead and pay. If you don't want to pay it, you don't do it. So that is that is cool.
0: And they just raised $27 million from, I think, GV led the round. And GV has also put money into other companies in the kind of like, I don't know, consumer healthcare mm-hmm. space.
1: Yeah, GV for those unacquainted is formerly Google Ventures. I found it very interesting that GV also invested in one medical yeah. So One Medical offers like a subscription model. People pay, I think, like a couple hundred dollars a year to be able to access its health care services. There's a few differences between the two. One Medical is only primary care. It does have physical locations, which Sesame is starting to have as well. And that's one of the things it wants to use its money to expand and have more of those like in-person locations. And Sesame is also moving into a membership model. So actually there's, you know, there's similarities yeah. and there's differences. But I just... I thought it was interesting and when I asked GV about did they view the two as competitors?
0: I got no comment. Yeah, it's because they are competitors because they're both offering healthcare services to consumers outside of the traditional insurance market. One right. Medical, I think, has worked with corporations to kind of offer access to its mm-hmm. services. I was a One Medical customer at one point in time. I think other people who helped put the show together also have experience with them, so we know them pretty well. And One Medical went public right. back in the day, and I just pulled out their stock price chart. Their official corporate name is One Life Healthcare, but it's One Medical. And their shares peaked at over of uh, nearly 60 bucks a share, and they're down to seven. Now, yeah. not the only company we've seen, Marianne, have that kind of trading pattern that saw a peak in 2021 and a trough in 2022. Right. But I will say, points to GV for not letting that dissuade them from making more bets. They're still cutting checks, even with a, let's just say, related investment suffering mm. in its post-liquidity environment.
1: Right, exactly. So we'll see how this goes with Sesame, but they're saying that they're growing 25% month over month. Revenue grew nearly 500% year over year. So there seems to be demand for this kind of thing out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to get a a little inkling into how messed up the American healthcare market is, medical billing is one of the fastest growing jobs in the country, which is all... Human cost, sitting inside the healthcare system doing nothing. And that's why it costs like, what, $80 billion, I think, Marianne, to get an ambulance in the country. And if you get a hug from a doctor, it's an extra $2,000 minimum. (laughs) Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's Uh, pretty sad. Speaking about things that are expensive, Mark Lore, and it has this company called Wonder. And I have to say, Marianne, I was late to this story. I know Mark Lore from the Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jet.com days. He also sold Quidzy, which was a e-commerce brand. So he's had a couple of big exits, one for nearly a billion, one for several billion. Mark Lore, just known as an e-commerce guy is my read. So (laughs) how surprised were we when he got into the, and I'm going to summarize here, Marianne, mobile food preparation and delivery space.
1: Yeah. I mean, that just seems overwhelming to me. (laughs) Like, um, that's a lot right now. It's a lot
0: right now because it's one of those multi-part models that's very hard because you're going to have a Mm -hmm. uh, machinery component. You have to cut out vans. You have to get staff, you have to get supply chains in place for resources, you have to nail timings, balance supply and demand and food wastage. And Wonder is doing this model of trying to essentially complete cooking for meals, as best as I can understand it, on the way to someone's house, like they say firing a steak or whatever, so that way when it reaches your house, it's, you know, well-prepared. And quote, you know, fries are mm-hmm. still crispy, steak is still juicy, whatever. And it just raised a bunch of money and is now worth $3.5 billion. I think it's raised 900 million total in equity and debt. And it, this just feels, I, I don't know, this feels like a soft bank deal from, you know, four years ago.
1: Yeah, it feels, I mean, I know he's got a great track record. It feels overly ambitious to me. They did just raise yeah. 350 million just now, I think it was led by Bain Capital Adventures. I'm, I, skeptical. I'm skeptical,
0: but I'm here for it. So I, I want to temper all of yeah. us, uh, all <laughs> of our hmm about this because I am and have historically been a useless man. And by that, I mean to say that I don't really spend a lot of my fun time cooking you could say. And in my first stint at TechCrunch, there was a spate of startups. This is actually before you and I were friends, Marianne. So this is way back in the day. There were companies like Sprig and I think Spoon Rocket. And they were trying to get you food mm-hmm. faster, more easily. It was just like, like methods of food prep that were different from just like Uber Eats bringing you stuff from the place down the street, you know? Right, and I used to right. have these delivered to that. the TechCrunch office. Like we used to like say like, what's on Sprig today to each other? Like, you know, Spoon Rocket's running out of X. And so mm-hmm. we would just sit around the office and get food delivered and keep working. Those all died hate to say it. And then there was Zoom. <laughs> See you and me, the mobile pizza truck thing that didn't really seem to go anywhere. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's right. And now there's Wonder Group. Yeah.
0: And I mean, honestly, the idea of having a van finish a steak on its way to my house and then drop it off sounds lovely. I wonder what it's going to cost once it expands out of its current yeah. area of coverage, which is kind of like, you know, New Yorkish. Yeah. Like th- New
1: Jersey, right? That I blob New area. Yeah.
0: yeah. So,
1: Hmm. I mean, truck-based restaurants, I mean, like you said, it's, in theory, it sounds cool, but like in, in cooking like hot meals and delivering them, this seems like the sort of thing that would have come out like yes. in the beginning of the pandemic, right? Like there would have been greater demand for it. I don't know. If, I'm, we'll see. Like, A, how much is this meal going to cost, right? How quickly can they make these meals make them good and still make money? You know, gas prices are up. You know, I feel like this is going to be an uphill battle. It would be very cool if it's successful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan (laughs) of cooking either, but... Yeah, I'm just curious to see how. (laughs) Uh, I'm the
0: type of person who's like, maybe this next time I make a slow cooker dinner, it'll be good. And it never (laughs) is. And I'm like, all right, well, burritos it is. (laughs) One of my old colleagues, Joanna Glasner from the Crunchbase News family, taught me an important lesson about economics that I think was called something like the $25 cheeseburger. And she's like, when you think about the cost at like a lot of restaurants to collect ingredients, pay for labor, upkeep, margins, so forth, cheeseburgers can cost like $25. And at that point, no one wants to buy them. And this was four years ago. Or whatever. So, you know, call it the $27 cheeseburger, or whatever. The point is some things in the food world don't work out economically. And so you have to have like subsidies Some other things like drinks, for example. So uh, right. I'm very curious about this. I want it to work and it has a lot of money and Mark Lore has a track record. That's very good. So maybe, maybe, maybe it would maybe. be a wonder if it did work though. Hey, <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's move along. Oh, I forgot to say this up top. Natasha's on vacation this week. She's not off the show. She's just off doing fun no. things. And so Marianne and I are here holding the fort down, but I think we're back to full strength next week, right? I think we're the whole crew. Good. Yeah. I so think if you so. have missed Natasha's right. voice, she shall return next week. Get hyped. Okay. Now we're going to move on to the good news part of the show. We're going to talk about why startups are in better shape than you think. And Marianne, I want to start from the other perspective here. I want to talk about fintech because fintech valuations have been under more pressure than nearly any other startup niche in the last 12 months. It seems that the era of infinite mega rounds has come to a close. So from your perspective, what is the current level of sentiment perhaps in the fintech startup space?
1: Um, I think there's a lot of caution, right? There's definitely a lot of let's hold off, see how companies are doing before we keep pouring more money into them, which is, you know, a general sentiment. And as we've talked about in the past, I feel like infrastructure is one of the areas that does continue to grow, where I'm seeing a lot of money still going into and higher valuations. But relatively speaking, things are quieter overall, and I expect they will be for some time.
0: Yeah, that's what I I thought you were going to say. It was something roughly along the lines of some hesitation, some pullback, and a, a general sentiment shift. Now, Mike Volpe, an investor over at Index, wrote a letter Two startups and sent it over to TechCrunch and we published it because it had some interesting stuff in it. And I took the time to chat with him to kind of go over his thesis. And the gist is, and this is part of a growing trend that I'm seeing from a number of investors on Twitter and also people who text me and, you know, share stuff a little bit more privately, which is that a lot of startups are seeing operating results that are pretty good even if the climate for investment in valuations has come down dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so my take on this is that we are seeing a lot of fear out there in the market. And certainly some areas are struggling. I think quick commerce is in some dire straits, for yeah. example. The crypto world is suffering. We'll get to that later on. But if you're selling like enterprise software, it seems to be much like in kind of the May 2020 downturn end that things are kind of okay. And so I'm curious to see how much of the current market sentiment shift is due to changes in operating results or just suddenly investors being afraid.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's a lot of the latter. There was this FOMO funding craze last year and investors were really just trying to get in on deals early. I think they obviously didn't conduct enough due diligence. I am curious though as to where Mike got this number about seventy five percent of startups hitting or exceeding their plan like how does he know this?
0: Ah. So that is a number from my chat with him. And mm-hmm. he was very clear. He was like, look, I don't have visibility into all the companies in the world, but he does have visibility into index. And he also has visibility because I'm sure he talks to other investors and sees a lot of pitches kind of where companies are. And to be clear, this is not 75% of every single tech company out there, probably kind of more focused on where index puts capital to work. That's where mm-hmm. he would have the most you know, mm-hmm. attention. But the number is more directionally important than precise, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. the fact that it's not half, it's, more than half indicates to me that quite a lot of companies are going to be doing okay. Now, he also said plan is different at different companies. There's operating plans. There's board plans. There's (laughs) an internal hire plan that you don't tell your investors because, you know, you want to shoot a little (laughs) higher than what you've promised the board. And so plan's a little flexible. But generally speaking, it does seem that a lot of startups are doing kind of okay. And Marianne, I want to give a couple of quick examples about this. Mm -hmm. We've seen very good results from GitLab and Salesforce on the public markets. GitLab, went public recently, it's kind of a GitHub competitor, DevOps, well-known startup, did rather well in its, um, shit, was it a direct listing or a public offering? I forget which one. Anyways, Mm -hmm. the point is we've seen good results from them, indications that the economic changes aren't really killing their market. And we've also seen a couple of other companies still be able to raise and essentially things continue at a reasonably strong pace. So this is kind of where the narrative seems to be. Will that translate to better valuations? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think you you know you made a point about startups that are selling to other businesses are probably doing better than those that are consumer facing for obvious reasons. I mean, with inflation being where it is today.
0: Yeah. I think the idea there is consumers might have the most variable spend. And right. so if, if consumers get afraid and stop spending, though, that would be very un-American, frankly, just thinking domestically because Americans love credit, then you might have some more exposure to changing market conditions, interest rates, and so forth, which actually we're just about to get to because we're going to talk about housing in a minute. But I was just happy to see that there was some some pushback to the narrative of the sky yeah. is falling. Yeah. Because, yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, well, Sorry to interrupt you, but I mean I think I think the doom and gloom is a little unwarranted in that and, and you bring it up in one of your stories, Alex, about the revenge of the quiet companies. I think we're looking at a lot of the flashier ones that have had these lofty valuations and made headlines over the past year and a half and we're assuming that they represent, you know, the majority of startups. That's not true necessarily. There's a lot of startups out there that aren't, you know, seeking a ton of fanfare. They're just quietly building and growing. And so, you know, they don't get as much attention, but they're out there.
0: Yeah. Actually, I want to use that as a a bit of a pivot into the HomeLight discussion because HomeLight is a company that just raised some money. And you told me right before the show that they are roughly 10 years old, another company that's been around for longer than I thought. So to get us into the housing discussion here, because we have a couple of notes about this, what's HomeLight and why do we care about them right now?
1: Yeah, so Homelite, it has been around for about 10 years. It started as kind of this matching, trying to match realtors with potential home buyers, And just like pretty much every other real estate tech company, evolved its model over the years, right? And, you know, with a lot of real estate tech companies wanting to do all of it. It seems to be doing well, from what I can tell, which is unsurprising. Like they moved into providing title and escrow services, right? And then they started getting to get into lending, right, which is very interesting. So it raised $60 million just now, but from one investor, its valuation is up from $1.6 billion last September to $1.7 billion. And the CEO is proud of this and said it's an example of flat being the new up. He said yes. it's a testament to the strength of his business, which I think was a refreshing comment. Like he wasn't trying to, you know, he wasn't embarrassed by it. He wasn't trying to make excuses for it. He's like, hey, we wanted to get more cash. We want to keep growing. So what if our valuation didn't go up that high, but we're still going to keep building. So I thought that was cool. And they purchased another startup called Accept.Inc, which is like a, they call themselves a lender, I lender. Anyway, so they're, they're growing, they're continuing to grow. And this is especially interesting because this week we also wrote about two pretty high profile layoffs in the space with Redfin and Compass combined, letting go of about 920 people.
0: Okay. So I want to get to that, but you've picked my curiosity. You just said Islander. Now (laughs) I buyer with the letter I and a capital B (laughs) are the companies that are out there essentially buying homes from people and then selling them to other people kind of becoming the middle party in this relatively complex transaction in people's lives what the fuck is an i <laughs> <eye> lender
1: <laughs> yeah well this company coined the phrase it's not like a you know, oh, means, okay. they, they they made it up. But basically yeah. they are a technology enabled lender and they're trying to give people a way to submit a cat all cash offer on a home upon qualifying for a mortgage. So a home light bought this company. They didn't say how much they paid, just that it was an all-stock transaction. But they okay. they did say that their cash offer product is growing quite a lot. And when I was talking about five hundred percent year over year growth, I don't remember if I did talk about this, they were referring specifically to their cash offer product because So many people want to compete with others and they want to be able to offer all cash.
0: Yeah. Well, it does seem like much like FinTech, all prop deck ends up tasting like chicken because they end up doing everything. Because why not? If you already have people coming through your service. But going back to the bad news, Mm -hmm. HomeLite being the exception to the recent news, we've got Redfin, Compass laying off staff, stock market has punished them. Marianne, for folks who don't know, what do the two companies do and why do we care so much about what they are up to?
1: Well, you know, they also start out as real estate brokerages, right? Letting people shop online for homes. And- Evolve their models as well. Well, if anyone's been paying attention, if you're looking to buy a house, you can see that the mortgage industry, the mortgage rates, interest rates are like super high now compared to what they were 2021, 2020. I think they're close to six percent. Which now I think we purchased a home years ago at like eight and a half percent. So you know, yeah, yeah, I don't remember what year it was, but you know, six percent feels super, super high right now. But it's not like crazy high compared to like years past. But when you look at rates that were below 3% last year, it's a lot. So that's deterring people from buying homes. Crazy overheated housing markets like Austin, where prices went up by like 45% in a year is deterring people from buying homes. Inflation. So long story short, Redfin and Compass are struggling. And uh, Redfin CEO, who I met, Here in Austin, a few years ago, was actually very refreshing in his letter to employees. And I really appreciated his candor. He was saying that, you know, they wouldn't lay off people unless they had to. He admits they have to. And he also brought up that he really wants to keep trying to make the company profitable. And if it wants to do that, this is one of the measures it has to take. And to quote him, he said, if falling from $97 per share to $8 doesn't put a company through heck, I don't know what does. We yeah. owe it to everyone who has invested your time or treasure in this company to become profitable and then very profitable.
0: I mean, that last couple of words there was what I wanted to bring up because it's such key verbiage. You know, if you are not profitable, generally speaking, you're on borrowed time. And if you want to build a company that's super stable, profitability is key. And I'll just say, you know, all the major tech companies in the world, the ones that have been around for decades, the ones that have reached trillion dollar market caps and so forth, uh, they make money. And that's a that's a data point. Also, they tended to have a history of early profitability as well. Now, I'm not saying you have to meet that threshold now to become worth a lot of money, but like profitability, it's important. And (laughs) it feels so strange to say that in such kind of a boring way. But like... it's good for the Redfin crew to say it out loud. It's good for people to be thinking more about this. I, I actually wrote a story, Marianne, kind of talking about how like some tech companies have been caught a little bit flat-footed mm-hmm. by this kind of profitability push. And I think actually going back to the, the Mike Volpe thing from before, I can provide mm-hmm. a little context as to why. Because when revenue multiples were so hot last year, it was kind of okay to take a dollar and spend it and make 15, 20 cents worth of revenue because you were getting a 40X multiple on your revenue. So you were turning $1 into 20 cents of revenue, but like $8 in valuation. Now that's no longer the case. And so that kind of spend feels insane. And so people are not kind of looking at their burn rates now that the output is much less valuable and going, whoa, whoa, what's this? And that's the new world.
1: And that's how it should be. I mean, honestly, it it kind of irritates me where people are like, oh, you know, now you have to back to the basics. You've got to, like, really be careful with what you're doing. Why were you not like that all the time is what I don't understand. Like, why? Why were you spending like crazy and hiring like crazy and all of that? I mean, you should always always be operating, you know, more conservatively, in my opinion. I'm not a, a company startup owner, but, you know, it's just kind of business 101. And uh, Light CEO, he he admitted, because I was curious, I was like, this industry's struggling. What, what's up with you guys? And he admitted they're watching burn closely. They've slowed hiring through the end of the year. And he's also talking about trying to prioritize profitability. So I don't know. I mean, this back-to-basic stuff is like, you know, you should have been operating this way to begin with, and you, maybe you wouldn't be in this situation.
0: Okay, but... <laughs> There's momentum to behavior, right? Essentially habits don't change overnight, but they can be reformed or made worse over a long period of time. For example, I try to work out. I try to work out very regularly because it helps me sleep and it helps me eat like a 12 year old. That's important to me. (laughs) But sometimes I fall off the exercise wagon. But none of the bad stuff that I do stops when the good stuff stops. I still eat candy at night. I still stay up late, play video games, whatever. And I feel like you have to have a good balance to kind of have a healthy life. But in certain market conditions, like if if the market said, Alex, all we care about is how much candy you can eat. I'm not going to work out. And so I feel like th- this is my horrible analogy yeah. for what happened during 2020 and 2021, when there was so much free fun available for companies in the form of capital that they got away from it. But I mean, yeah. they were essentially paid to do that by the market. So like,
1: eh, yeah. I hear you. But- yeah, I know. And, and and in founder's defense, I guess I can see that, right? And it's kind of like getting hyped by all this as money coming in and growth at all costs mentality. So I guess I can understand where you, you might get a little like overexcited and yeah. ahead of yourself, but- but still, like, just be careful. and Use some yeah.
0: common sense. Well, it's funny how this all kind of plugs into the world of crypto because the FDX dude, Sam Bankman Freed, I think, SBF, mm-hmm. I think he goes by, he did some tweets during the kind of like crypto layoff news cycle that his investors had really encouraged him to hire more rapidly during the boom. Just mm-hmm. like he said something like, we had 200 employees, they expected 2,000. You know, they were like, hire, 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 and he didn't. And oh, now that him. looks, yeah. yeah. It looks prescient now because we've seen layoffs from Coinbase this last week. We've seen the crisis at Celsius following the Terra Luna meltdown. Mm -hmm. We've seen layoffs at, I think, Crypto.com. I think Gemini as well, BlockFi. And so, Marion, it does seem that the crypto reset, or whatever you want to call it, the current moment in in crypto world, really is hitting the human side of things. And I, I guess... I'm not surprised, but I am surprised. I'm surprised that it happened so quickly and all at once. But I guess yeah. given the kind of worsening market conditions, we shouldn't be that shocked. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. I feel like in general, everything that's been happening happened quickly and all at once, right? It wasn't as gradual as I expected it to be. It was just like a pretty sudden shift. Coinbase in particular, I think people are a little bit surprised considering how much it grew last year. I mean, right, like revenue wise, profitability wise, it grew a lot. I don't know, I'm watching all this crypto activity or or things happening in the space. And like you wrote this article about what's the catalyst behind the crypto crash. And you pointed out, you know, how much lower all these different currencies are trading. But I think I'm still wondering, like, Okay, but what led to all of them trading lower? Like is it spillover from public markets? You know, what exactly led to this?
0: I think, well, everyone can pick their own single factor. They they weight the most heavily. I don't think there's any single answer. No one individually flipped a switch. I will say that the crypto market was overall more leveraged than I think people realized. I think there was more counterparty risk than people realized. And so it turns out that declining asset prices don't just harm the portfolios of retail traders, our friends, and so forth. It ended up cracking a couple of the lending nodes inside of the broader crypto market that led to other tremors and other panic and throw in, I would just say overall declines in the value of higher priced, more risky assets in a rising interest rate environment. And frankly, the end of a period of freneticism when it comes to consumer trading more generally, this is Mm -hmm. what's brought Robinhood's stock price down so sharply and so forth. And so to me, it's a confluence of things that all Mm -hmm. add up to a wave of pain versus any single thing being the, Mm -hmm. the driving factor. But, you know, as the value of individual tokens, digital assets, and so forth goes up. There's more kind of almost like money stock, If you want to think about it in USD terms in the world of crypto, which allows for bored apes to have a floor price of over 100K. Well, that's over, you know, that sort of thing. So it's broad, it's complex, and we're figuring it out. In fact, we're recording this to you Thursday afternoon, everybody, as we always do. And uh, we have a story going up on the site right now from Jacqueline Melnick, one of our crypto reporters, about how, you know, VCs in the Web3 space are, you know, yanking turn sheets, pulling back from offers. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of like the crypto native money that was piling into these startups was in fact predicated on those entities having a lot of assets that were in fact on the blockchain. And now that yeah. those are worth less, they have less money to invest. Yeah,
1: I mean like what happened with Celsius I thought was, was particularly interesting with having to halt withdrawals and transfers. I mean, that that's not good.
0: <laughs> no, in fact, if you, <laughs> I, I don't want to call them a financial institution because that would imply a certain regulatory posture, but let's call them a financial institution because they are. Mm-hmm. If you halt withdrawals, <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's, that means like you don't have enough, <laughs> enough there, right?
0: Yeah. A lack of liquidity at a liquidity provider or a central point of, you know, lending and staking is about as bad as it gets. It's like yeah. showing up to a racetrack with no tires for your car. You're not going anywhere and no one's getting on. And for individuals, this is terrifying. I mean, it I, is. I, I've just, have you seen all the horror stories from people that have, like had their whole net worth on Celsius?
1: Oh my God. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I just can't.
0: I it it makes it makes my heart sink,
1: yeah,
0: that uh, we think a lot about this from the perspective of founders, investors, early employees, but I think in the case of crypto more so than what we think about like mm-hmm. the value of fintech startups, there's right. a lot more retail money, as we say at risk, and yeah. i think I think there's some guilt that's to be held by investors who got in early and got out early while a lot of regular folks didn't, and
1: yeah that's that's a really good point alex i mean i and i think these people a lot of these people are paying the price now and that makes that makes me sad because you know these aren't people who are millionaires who have ways to get more money somehow you know like a lot of these founders or investors you know these are a lot of everyday folks who were thinking they could build their their wealth or net worth and then find themselves in a really bad spot and it just makes me sad
0: yeah during the uh the, the boom Uh, I have a lot of friends who invest, you know, either individually or for groups or for whatever. And I I always have been the receiver. They're on the receiving end of of ribbing because I'm a journalist. All of my money is in index funds. So I have the most boring portfolio on on the face of the earth. I think I own like, I think probably what was once worth $50 worth of ether and Bitcoin that I had in little Coinbase wallets to essentially like try things out. I had just enough money to realize I didn't have enough money to do anything on the blockchain, (laughs) but not enough money to have a conflict of interest. Anyways, the point is all my money is in, in, you know, total market index funds and people, you know, they joked, do you want to like, you know, work forever? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe. And now ha ha jokes on them. All of my yeah. stuff is boring and not doing that much. It's not going up, but I'm certainly not broke. So shout out to everyone out there who has been dollar cost averaging into the whole market. This is our time to shine.
1: Yeah, risk-averse is not always a bad thing.
0: <laughs> Sometimes it can be. Marianne, <laughs> take us out on a high note here. We have a, a last little news story looking at a company in the US in the crypto space that is not falling apart and is in fact hiring.
1: Yeah, it's Binance, right? Is that, Am I pronouncing it right?
0: Well, critically, it's Binance.us.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. Binance.us, right?
0: Which is not Binance.
1: (laughs) Okay, got it. Okay, Binance.us. Yeah, the CEO was saying that they have like over $250 million in the bank. They have a current burn rate that they could go years before needing to raise again. And that the exchange is growing faster than ever and hiring like over 80 people. So this is like stark contrast to the other companies that we've been reading about all week.
0: Yeah. I just think about like the number of staff that Coinbase hired. And I I don't mean to single them out as a, as a company just because they're having a tough week, but I I think it's interesting because they have gone public. So we have gotten to see their numbers much more closely than other companies in the crypto space. So they've become essentially a key data source for us. So we're indexing on them because of that, not just because of, you know, Brian Armstrong's viewpoints on this or that or whatever. They hired incredibly aggressively and now they're cutting more than a thousand people, which I think is 5X the entire FTX staff. And so when I think about Binance.us and their long burn rate, I wonder if they also didn't hire as aggressively last year and therefore have less ski to get over, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I would be curious to know that. I mean, apparently they have 400 plus employees, so it's not like super large company worker wise. But I mean, the the CEO seems pretty... What's the word hype? And he's saying that he he says that the company is in the strongest position possible to not only successfully weather this downturn, but also emerge as the leading crypto platform in the U.S. Now, I don't know about all that, but
0: fighting words.
1: Yeah, he's not being uh, shy about what he thinks they're doing right.
0: Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our attempt at a positive show during a very rough week in the stock market. We did not talk about Tesla once. We did not talk about Elon Musk once or Twitter. You're very welcome. And nor did we complain about the fact that the stock market is currently vomiting all over its shirt. You're welcome. We adore you. We are back next Monday. We are back next Wednesday. We are back next Friday. Natasha's back. Marianne and I will be here. It's going to be an absolute blast. Take care of yourself this weekend and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.